0: Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. All right. How many of you have ever begun something, you started something, but you didn't see it all the way through to completion. You don't even have to raise your hand because I know that you have. We, we've all done that, right? If you don't raise your hand, I, I know that you're, you're not being honest. We've all started different things and we... we set out originally to see it through. That was our intention. That's why we started it in the first place. But something came up. We got distracted. We changed our mind or we just didn't didn't have what it took to to follow through on it. So maybe it was a a diet or an exercise program. Maybe it was a project around your house. You're gonna remodel the bathroom. You're gonna paint the living room. Something that you began, but you didn't see it through to completion. Maybe reading a book. It, It can be any number of things. A few years back, I started a a master's degree program, and I got about halfway through. A lot of things changed in my life and my situation, and so I, I stopped. I didn't complete it. So I've got like half of a master's degree, which means absolutely absolutely nothing. When I started it, my intention was to, to follow through and actually complete the thing. That's why I signed up. It's why I paid the money. It's why I invested the time. We've all got different things that we have begun, but we didn't see it through and we didn't complete it. For Pastor Josiah, it was high school. You know, started off with good intentions. But by the third time through the ninth grade, you know, enough is enough. And I'm just kidding. He's, he's much smarter than I am. But we've all got things that we've begun, we began them, and we didn't complete them. Now, it's one thing to start a project around the house or to start reading a book and never finish it, but the Bible says that there are people who will begin following Jesus? They'll start serving Him, and they, they intend when they accept Jesus, they want to make it to heaven. But there's people that, for different reasons, will end up turning aside and they won't be steadfast in their faith, and follow it through. They'll start off okay, but they won't remain faithful to following after Jesus. The word steadfast means the ability to stay on course, the ability to maintain a direction and not turn aside, not to, not to alter your path. That's what it means to be steadfast. So we're gonna take some time and talk about being steadfast and some ways that we can make sure that we're steadfast. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter two. Verse 5, it says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Rejoicing to see the steadfastness of their faith. Paul is writing to the Colossian church and saying, Well, man, when I see that you're steadfast, you haven't, you haven't turned to the side, you're, you're staying on course, it causes me to rejoice Now, that's what Paul wrote to the Colossians, but the Bible says that Scripture is inspired. So this isn't just Paul saying this. It's really coming from the Spirit of God. So there's something that causes God himself to rejoice, that causes his Spirit to rejoice. When he sees people like you and me not turning to the side but being steadfast in our faith, it causes him to rejoice. It is important to be steadfast. It's important to stay on course. Imagine if you were going to take a trip by yourself, or maybe you're taking your family with you, and you're going to go to Orlando. So you, you load up, you get on a plane, and you, you're enjoying the flight, and it's starting to to descend, and finally you land, and as you're kind of taxiing around, you look out the window, and you think, this this doesn't look like Orlando. I don't, I don't think we're in Orlando. And they, the pilot comes on the intercom and says, well, folks, I want to welcome you to Omaha, Nebraska. You think, what What in the world? You're, you're kind of upset. All the passengers would be a little bit frustrated, and the, the pilot understands that, so he starts to make excuses. He says, I know we set off for Orlando, but man, it, it's not as easy as you think to fly these things. I don't know if you've ever seen all the gadgets and dials. I mean, when you, when you look out the window, everything looks the same from up here, and it's, it's so windy. You don't understand the wind. It's so easy to get off course. You, you wouldn't want to hear excuses that you ended up in the wrong destination. You'd be thinking to yourself, no, listen, you got to find a way. There's got to be a way to keep this thing on course. You've got to figure it out. There must be some kind of way to set a destination and actually end up in that destination. Because if you're going to end up someplace else, then you wouldn't have even began that journey in the first place. The reason you began was to get to the finish line that you had predetermined. Now, it's one thing for that to be a plane, but in our lives, there is ways to make sure that we're steadfast in our walk with the Lord. It's not just chance. It's not just some people make it. Some people don't. Just like you would think to yourself, they've got to figure out a way to keep this plane on course. You and I have got to figure out a way to keep our walk with Jesus on course. He says, I rejoice in the steadfastness of your faith. So he's identifying a particular kind of faith, steadfast faith. Well, that means there must be other kinds of faith. There must be faith that isn't steadfast. There must be people who start off, they they have faith, they believe some of the same stuff you and I do, they just don't stay on course. They don't actually live in line with the things that they say that they believe. If there's steadfast faith, that means there's also disloyal faith, fickle faith, unfaithful faith. You believe a bunch of stuff, but you don't stay on course. This is important. I quoted last week from Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says in the last days, which I believe that we're living in, he says in the last days, the love of many, the love of many will wax cold or will grow cold. Think about that. Man, that that bothers me. I love this church. I love you. I love your family. And when I think about Jesus saying the love of many. To look around this room and to think uh, a bunch of people who want to be on track with Jesus, it's possible that many people in this room, that they're going to fall out of love with Jesus. That, That bothers me. To me, that's, that's unacceptable. So we've got to figure out a way for our church family to make sure that we are steadfast. When winds come, when challenges come, it doesn't cause us to alter course. We follow through and we cross that finish line that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because if you start off well, that's, that's great. But if you don't finish, then what was the point to even bother beginning? So we're going we're to be talking about being steadfast. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy Chapter 4. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Start reading in verse 6. Paul says this For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Now, we'll, we'll read those next couple of verses, but Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, Listen, I, I, can, see, I can see the end. My departure is close. It, my, my, my life is about to end. And as he reflects over the time that he's been serving Jesus, he's able to say, I, I fought the good fight. I've finished my race. I didn't just start off. I've been able to cross the finish line. I have kept the faith. Now, if you know much about the life of Paul, there was a number of different challenges that he faced. He was persecuted. He was lied about. He was slandered. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was tossed out of cities. People hated him. He lived a difficult life, but he says, despite all of those things, I I kept the faith. None of those things were able to cause me to turn aside. In Acts chapter 20, talking about some of the persecution, he said, none of these things move me. It doesn't matter what what they do to me, what kind of threats. I'm so committed. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to keep the faith. And we're given a clue here as to one of the things that helped him keep on track. He had an eternal perspective. It says, I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. He was living his life not just focused on the here and now and the difficulties. He knew that all of this was passing away, but there was going to be a day where he stood before the Lord. And he said, man, I, I know I'm getting that crown of righteousness. That's what he was focused on. That the righteous judge was going to give him that crown. That's what his focus was. And it helped keep him on track. So that's what he's talking about. But listen to these next couple of verses. Right after that, verse 9. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. So he talks about how faithful he's been. And right after that, it's contrasted with somebody, a guy named Demas, who was the opposite. He says, he's forsaken me. He departed. He left me. He deserted me. So Paul was faithful. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race, fought the good fight. But Demas Demas stopped. Why why did he stop? Why did he desert? Why did he fall away and quit serving the Lord? We're, We're told that he fell in love with something. It says that he fell in love with this present world. So Paul had an eternal perspective, but the things of this present world, what he could enjoy in the here and now, what he could touch, what he could taste, what he could could indulge himself in, this present world caused him to desert. He stopped serving alongside Paul, stopped serving to advance the kingdom of God, and the reason was because he fell in love with the world. Now, why does falling in love with the world cause somebody to desert serving the Lord? Because what you love, what you set your affections on, what you set your desires on, it creates like a gravitational pull and begins to pull you in that direction. Whatever it is, what you set your affection on will pull you in that direction. I love my wife, I love my kids. So you know what happens? There, there's a gravitational pull that pulls me in that direction. When I'm not with them, I spend time thinking about them. I want to spend my spare time with them. I, I think of, of things we could do together, trips we could take, fun things we could do around, around the house. Uh, my money is directed to them in large part. Because there's, there's a gravitational pull because, because I love them, right? There's a gravitational pull. When, when I first started dating my wife, Beth, we fell in love. You know what eventually happened? I stopped living with my mom and dad. That pool pulled me out of that household. And I left my home. And I, now I live with her. I don't live with my mom and dad anymore. That's not, not a bad thing. I love my mom and dad. That, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? Genesis chapter 2. And a man leaves his father and mother and clings to, to his wife. But it's, it's the, the gravitational pull that affection creates that starts to move you in a direction. This works for everything. I'm just giving you a few different examples. That what you set your heart on, it creates a pool. You don't have to be aware of it. You start loving something, you begin to move in that direction. Some of you are aware of the fact that I have set my, my football affections on the Cleveland Browns. And I, I, know, yeah, I know people are, have lots of jokes to make. But it is what it is. That's who I like. I, I love the Cleveland Browns. So if you're familiar with the Cleveland Browns, the last... 20 or 30 years, they haven't had the most stellar, stellar of records. And so back in 2002, they actually had a winning, <laughs> sounds ridiculous just saying it, they had a winning season back in 2002. And it came down to the final game of the year, and if they won that game, they would make it to the playoffs, which was extremely, extremely rare. So it was December of 2002, and it happened to be the same time that my wife and I came to Clarksburg for the very first time. We came to visit the church. We came to interview. And so we came on a Saturday night. We met the pastor, went out to dinner, attended church the next morning. And then we got lunch after, after church that day. And we're sitting at the table, and I'm being interviewed for this position that I, I wanted to come here. I wanted to be, for, it was at the, for the youth pastor at that time. So I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to the pastor, but it just so happened, we're actually right up the hill at Outback here, Over his shoulder was a TV. And on that TV was the Cleveland Browns playing the Atlanta Falcons. And if they won that game, they would get into the playoffs. And I remember sitting there trying so hard to focus on this man that's interviewing me for this this position, for the ministry that I wanted to be in. But I couldn't help it. My attention kept drifting off to look at, I'm watching the game over his shoulder and just kind of nodding mindlessly to what, maybe it worked out to my advantage. Maybe that's how I got the job. I don't know. But I remember the the draw was so strong because I've set my affection there. It it kept pulling my my attention there. What you set your affection on creates a pool on, on your life. Pastor Jonathan loves coffee. I like coffee too, but he, he loves coffee. So when I travel with him, when we go on a ministry trip or we go somewhere to, to learn about leadership, we go to a city, I know we're going to end up at some high-end coffee shop in that city because he, he loves it. And so he's gonna research it, he's gonna go online, he's gonna find out the best coffee shops, we'll reroute our day and our travel, we'll carve out time, we're gonna end up there. Why? Because, because there is a love, and so it's a gravitational pull that you end up in those places what you set your affection on creates a pool on on your life. It works for, I'm just giving examples, it works for everything. Now, is love good or bad? Well, it depends. It depends what you set your affection on, right? It, it depends what you love, because whatever you love, that's the direction that, that you're moving. So it, it depends on, you, you can, people love all kinds of things, and We've kind of been taught in the church that we're supposed to just love love everything, right? And our culture has this understanding, a delusion really, that love means, if you love, it means that you just accept everything. Loving means being accepting of everything, which is a dangerous way to think. Love can be either good or bad. It all depends on what you set your love on. And so for the body of Christ, our culture thinks this way. If somebody is loving, it means that they just accept everything. And that's infiltrated a lot into the body of Christ. If we're going to be a loving environment, it means just anything goes and we just nod and smile at whatever's going on. Do you know there's things that the the Bible instructs us to hate. We're not just supposed to love everything. We are supposed to hate certain things. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Now listen to this. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. You've got to hate What is wrong? There's some stuff we should love and we we love people, but there are some attitudes, some behaviors, some actions, some mindsets, some activities that you and I are supposed to have a hatred for. Because if you, you set your love on certain things, it pulls you in that direction. There's supposed to be some things that you hate because just like love draws you towards something, hate causes you to be repelled from that thing. That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. He wasn't talking about affection. When he said you're going to love one and hate the other, he wasn't talking about your emotions towards them. He was talking about what we're talking about this morning, that you move towards what you love and you move away from what you hate. You you can't move in two different directions at the same time. You're going to have to go towards one, and as you do that, you'll go away from the other. That's why he said you'll love one and you'll hate the other. Love, Love attracts you, pulls you, and hate repels you. You know that I I love the Cleveland Browns. Some of you know that I also have a hatred for pickles. I I hate pickles, and when I say I hate them, I don't mean that I don't prefer them. I mean that I hate them. I'm disgusted by them. And sometimes people will try to be funny, and pull a pickle off their sandwich and offer it to me or put it in my face and think they're, they're, they're being funny. You know what I, I do? As soon as I see that thing, it's like I can sense they're around. Besides the putrid smell, it's like, it's like an evil entity. I can tell they're, they're around. When someone pulls one out and they're, they're being funny, I, I mean, I recoil. I move the other direction. I, I, I get away from it. Because I genuinely hate those things, so it causes me to move uh, away from them. When you hate things, it might be a silly example with pickles, but the same thing is true with certain behaviors and actions and environments that aren't healthy. When I know it threatens my walk with the Lord, when I develop a hatred for the things that God hates and a love for the things that God loves, it causes me to move in the right direction and away from things that, that are negative. It's important that we know we're not just supposed to love and accept everything contrary to what we've been taught and this this is a little bit of an aside but it's important contrary to what we've been taught in the body of Christ we're not just supposed to love and accept everyone and everything The, the Bible tells us not to And it's important for the health of the body of Christ that once somebody is a believer, once they are a follower of Jesus and a disciple, that there is a standard that they're supposed to live to. And we're supposed to help keep each other to that standard. Do you know that it's a privilege to be a part of the body of Christ? Most people have the attitude that when they show up at church, they're they're doing God a huge favor. They're doing the church a, a favor. And we're glad that you're here, but you know what? It is a privilege. It's an honor to be a part of the body of Christ. And I'm speaking for myself as well. It's an honor for me to get to be a part of the family of God. It's a privilege. And there's a standard that we're supposed to live up to. It's not just anything goes. Let let me read to you from first Corinthians chapter five. This part's going over about how I figured it would, but it's important. First Corinthians chapter five, verse nine says, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. He says, I'm not talking about unsaved people. We don't hold them to that standard. We're not disgusted with them because they sin. They don't know Jesus. They don't know any better. So he's saying, when I told you that there was a standard, we're not holding the world to that standard We're supposed to hold people in the body of Christ to that standard. He continues. Verse 11. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly, it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. It's our responsibility. We're so love and accepting, hey, we don't, don't judge one another. We have a responsibility, not out of hatred, out of love, to judge one another to keep ourselves free from sin. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Do you know the Bible says that? We're supposed to love one another, but that does not mean just, hey, however you want to live, if you you pray to prayer, you follow Jesus, anything goes, we're just happy you're here. There's a standard. If you want to be a part of the body of Christ, you're expected to live up to a certain level. And it says that people that indulge in sin, whether it's sexual sin or greed, any kind of immoral behavior, you're not supposed to even eat with them. You're supposed to remove them from your your fellowship. That's what the Bible says about the conduct of the body of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean if somebody sins, we kick them out. If somebody is struggling with sin, that's different. But the word struggle implies that there's a fight going on. That they're trying, they want it out of their lives. Man, I'm struggling with lust. I'm I'm struggling with this behavior. I want to be holy. If they're dealing with sin, they're they're moving towards holiness, then we're supposed to come alongside them and help them. It's talking about people who have sin in their life and they have no intentions of changing it. They're they're just going to continue sinning. It's just part of their life. They're not going to change it. It says that, that kind of person, don't even eat with them. What are we talking about? We're talking about We don't just love everything because whatever you love, you move in that direction. There's supposed to be a hatred for not people, but for some things and behaviors recognizing the danger of it. That we move in the direction of what we love. So we hate sin and we don't make allowance for it knowing it's going to pull us in a bad direction. There's a gravitational pull on us when we love things. Whatever you set your heart on. Demas deserted. Why? Because he fell in love with the world. You can see it all through the Bible. You know the story of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15. Why did he leave home? Was it because he just despised his dad? He hated being well cared for? He didn't like eating good food? He didn't like being provided for in protection? No. His heart started to go after the things of this world. He started to hear about crazy parties in the city. And people getting drunk and having a good time and all kinds of sexual escapades and eventually he fell in love to the point where he moved in that direction and it dislodged him from where he belonged in fellowship with the father to go out after those things. It works the same way in our lives that you begin to set your affections on things and it can break fellowship with the father and move you away from him. Now thankfully, you know the end of the story with the prodigal son that he ends up back home and fellowship is restored with the father but not Everyone makes it back home. Some people fall away from the father and they never return. It's a dangerous thing to make allowance for sin in our lives. Story after story in the Bible give us this warning. Even King Solomon, the Bible says, even though he started off honoring God, he got to a point in his life where it says he was disloyal to the Lord because his heart went after other things. All the people, all the wives that he surrounded with himself with, where he set his affections ended up drawing him away from the Lord. Turn your Bibles to James chapter one. we have got to learn to hate sin. Not because we hate people, because we love people. Sometimes hatred is a part of love. There's things I, I would... Hate because I love my kids. Anything that would threaten them, I, 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 would, I would hate it, right? I, would, I wouldn't want to get it out of my house, get it away from them. Not because I'm a hateful guy, because I'm a loving guy. Part of really loving someone, there's a a hatred part of that, and it's true with God, and he wants it to be true in our lives. Things that threaten relationship, things that threaten our our relationship with him, we're supposed to hate what is wrong. If it's going to pull you in a different direction than than closer to God, we're supposed to develop a hatred for it. James chapter 1, verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Temptation comes how? From our own desires, which entice us. And what are they trying to do? It's exactly, exactly what we're talking about. They, they drag us away with intentionally getting a, intending to get us to a point where we die. What you set your affection, those desires start luring you away and drag you away from the Lord. So we're talking about being steadfast. We don't want to be like Demas and get, get off course because we begin to love the world. Don't set your affection or your love on the things of the world. That's the first point. The second one is we've got to die to lusts in our lives. When we see an unhealthy desire, when we see an unhealthy affection, instead of tolerating them, instead of allowing them to stick around because it's not that bad, when we see it, we've got to learn to hate it and to kill it, to die to those things in our lives. What to you would be an intimidating animal? What would be a scary animal if you were in the wild, something that you wouldn't want to encounter, an animal that you think, man, I don't stand a chance. I wouldn't want to go one-on-one with a a grizzly bear or uh, a lion or something. Do you know that there is a point in time, as big and fierce and strong as those animals are, that there is a point in time where you could kill that animal with relative ease? Even though there's also a point where you don't stand a chance against a grizzly bear, there's also a point where you could take them out pretty easily. A lion, when it's born, weighs about two pounds. That's small for—I mean—a human baby. Our kids weigh what, like six pounds? It's like a third of a—I mean—that's that, small, right? You—you you could kill a baby lion. I'm not talking. This is an example, right? You could kill a baby lion. Fair, fairly easily, you know, a, a baby grizzly bear weighs one pound. You, you could take a one-pound bear, right? An alligator can grow to be fifteen feet long and five hundred pounds. That is a massive, scary animal. But when they're born, or they're not born, I guess they're they're hatched. When they come out of their little egg, they weigh one eighth of a pound. That's no match for you, right? You could you could handle that. Again, I'm not promoting killing animals. This is all just for for illustration. But when, when, when do you stand a chance against them? Against them, uh, You stand a better chance of dealing with it early on, right? To, to kill that thing right at the outset before it has a chance to gain strength and to gain power and to become bigger and bigger and have more force in, in your life. But what happens is when things are early on, just like that little bear and some of you looked at me with mean looks when I said kill the baby lion or kill, kill the baby bear. Some of you wanted to leave. Why? Because they're, they're so cute. They're so cute when they're little. I mean, it's, it's just a harmless, fuzzy little. That's the attitude we have towards a lot of lusts and desires in our lives because we don't see what it's going to become destroying our marriage, destroying our walk with the Lord, tearing our family apart, causing us to turn off course and start serving Jesus, causing our love for Jesus to wax cold. We don't see that. We just see, well, you know, listen, I'm, I'm a guy and guys like to, you know, we like to look at or we like to talk about. I'm a, I'm a lady and we like to gossip. And it's just kind of a cute little thing that it's what it's what we do we've got when we identify those things that aren't pleasing to the Lord we've got to be willing to put an end to them immediately and not have a tolerance in our lives for anything sinful anything displeasing and not to make compromises in the areas that we think well it's it's not that big of a deal well it might not be just like having a pet alligator for the first month or so isn't a big deal but eventually you've got a problem on your hands When you read through the Old Testament, the story of the Israelites, it it is so frustrating when you read their history, and time and time again, their hearts turn astray from the Lord. They get back on track just to go off track, and God calls them back to himself, and he's so merciful to them. It's just a couple of pages, and they're off serving idols again, over and over and over again. Do you know there was something they could have done early on as they headed into the promised land to keep them steadfast, to keep them from turning aside? over and over and over again. God tried to set them up and pave the way for them to be able to stay faithful. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is when they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Verse 16, he says, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. As they're going in, God says, listen, when you get in that land, there's all these different people living there. When you encounter them, I don't want you to leave a single thing breathing. I want you to annihilate them. I want you to wipe them out. That sounds extreme, but it's giving us a picture of the heart of God of how extreme God is to protect his relationship with his people, which if you know Jesus, you fall into that category. God has an extreme attitude, an extreme stance of protecting the relationship that he has established with each one of us. He doesn't want anything to threaten it, and if it poses a threat, he wants you to wipe it out. That's what he told them. He told them, Why? Because if you let them stick around, it's going to end up pulling your heart away from me. If you know the story, that's exactly what happened. They got into the land, they started wiping people out, but eventually it got to be a lot of work and things were okay. And there's just a few of them left, but listen to this recap in Psalm 106, verse 34, talking about exactly what we're talking about. It says, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and they played the harlot by their own deeds. And it goes on from there. But what was the problem? They did not destroy the people. They made compromises. They allowed some of those things to stick around when they thought it was manageable, and it did exactly what God warned them it would do. It would pull their hearts away from the Lord. We've got to kill lusts and desires, affections, things that are are against the kingdom of God, set all of our affection on the Lord, and when we see other lusts and desires spring up, we've got to be willing to cut them off, and the earlier you put them to death, the easier and the better off, you're going to be. Let me read you from 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1.4. It says, By which you have been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There is corruption that comes. How? Corruption that comes through lust. And when you think of of lust, a lot of times we just think of a sexual lust, which is part of it, but it's talking about an unhealthy desire, setting your affections on things, a strong desire. So, you know, a strong desire for power, influence, money, material things, sexual stuff is part of that, but it's, it's a wide category. Anything that you shouldn't set your heart on that you do, it becomes an unhealthy lust. And when you do that, it brings corruption. Corruption comes through lust. So what happens in a government that becomes corrupted? When a government becomes corrupted, it, a government has been set up ideally to serve the people, to be a blessing, to protect the people, to add some structure and some organization that people can, can live in safety and that it, to be a blessing, right? Ideally? Okay. But we all know of, of governments and politicians that have become corrupted. How do they become corrupted? Because even though they set off in a certain direction, it's to serve the people, to be a blessing to the people. Certain desires, the desire for money, the desire for power, the desire for influence started to to pull them aside and they started making decisions based on money, based on on their own power, based on their reputations, instead of on what was best for the people. And that lust, that desire for money, that desire for influence, it it corrupted them. It corrupts governments. The same thing can happen in a church. A church is to be a blessing to people, to advance the kingdom of God. There's, There's churches and church leaders that can become corrupt. How does that happen? It happens through lust. They they begin to love set an unhealthy desire on money, an unhealthy desire, again, on power, material things, whatever it happens to be, and that's how they become corrupted. It's easy to see when you talk about it as big organizations or governments, but the same thing applies to your life. The same thing applies to my life. You can become corrupted. Even though you say, I'm gonna serve Jesus, I'm gonna follow him, I've decided to follow Jesus, no no turning back, that's the direction, but when you allow lusts to grow in your life, it, it corrupts you, you start turning. Turning off course, you lose the ability to be steadfast because now you're being pulled, pulled to the side because you, you love sexual pleasure or you love certain indulgences, and it, it brings corruption. Let me give you a few practical ways. A few practical ways to deal with these lusts to, to put them to death. If it's if it's a lust of the flesh, talking about sexual immorality and those kinds of things. Something you can do, God's given us spiritual disciplines to help us stay faithful to him. So one thing you can do is you can fast. You can fast. That will help you die. So it's one thing to say, we've got to die to these things. How do we do it? Fasting will help you die to your flesh, not eating food. It'll help you deal with all kinds of different desires of the flesh. Because when you deny yourself food, you're denying yourself at the most base level desire that your flesh has. It's the strongest, it's the first desire that your flesh has to, to eat, to keep your belly satisfied. So when you learn how to say no at that level, you're building yourself up. You're, you're reprioritizing your life that your spirit man is in control and not your flesh, which is a problem. The Bible talks about people whose belly becomes their God. They just want to make their flesh feel good, and it begins to control their life. So one way you can cut that off is to, to take a regular time and fast. Deny yourself food. We start every year with 21 days of fasting and prayer, which is a good thing to do. That shouldn't be the only time that you fast every year. You should develop just a regular spiritual discipline. Just like hopefully you don't just read your Bible for a couple days at the beginning of the year. It's a regular thing. Fasting should be woven into your walk with the Lord. That you fast once a week or you fast every month. It's a way to keep our flesh in check. To die. So if you see sexual desire, some kind of lust growing in your life, when you spot that, you've got to do something about it to cut it off early on. And one of the things you can do is dedicate yourself to a time of fasting and prayer. If you've got a lust growing in your life for material things, you recognize, man, in my life, I'm really starting to covet uh, possessions. I'm just really getting uh, focused on material things. I realize in my life I'm getting really focused on money. There, there's another discipline that you can act on. And it'll help die to that in your life. Giving. If you're starting to sense, man, I see an unhealthy thing in my life where I'm becoming, I have a lust for stuff, a lust for material things, become a giver. And it'll help kill that in your life. So one of the reasons tithing is so important. God's created a system to keep that that lust in check in our lives. The Bible says the purpose of tithing is to keep God first in our lives. One of the ways we keep God first in our lives is by eliminating things that would pull us aside. So tithing, yes, it helps resource the body of Christ and fund ministries, but more importantly than that, it keeps your heart from wandering off and following material things. Be a tither. Give above and beyond the tithe. In church, but don't limit it to just offerings. Give to people. Give material things. Give objects that you have. Bless people. Become a giver, and it will cut off that desire. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. So when you feel that, man, I just want stuff. I just want things. I'm I'm online shopping all the time, or I'm just coveting all this stuff. I feel that desire. Turn it around and begin to use the discipline of giving to cut that off in your life you can fast, you can give. If you feel a lust for power and for influence, you feel pride growing in your life, man, I just want to be in control. I want people's attention. I want people to acknowledge me. If you feel that, man, I know I've got to cut that off. I've got to die to that. A discipline you can begin to do to cut that off, serve, serve, become a servant. Humble yourself. Look for ways to lift other people up, to care for others, to put other people's needs above your own. Serve in the church, in the body of Christ. Just make yourself a servant at home, at the workplace. Look for ways that you can serve other people, and you'll build humility, and you'll cut that pride and that, that lust for influence and power out of your life. Some practical things we can do. Not just say we need to die to these things. How do we do it? God's given us disciplines to actually take steps to cut these desires off of our lives. Let me give you one more way to keep ourselves steadfast and then we'll pray and receive communion. 2 Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter five, starting in verse... verse 10 says this for we must all stand before christ to be judged we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body because we understand our fearful responsibility to the lord we work hard to persuade others god knows we are sincere and i hope you know this too my, my younger sister is here this morning. We're, we're number four and five out of five. So we're the two youngest. So we are, we are close, but we are also wired very, very differently. When we were in high school and in college, I was pretty carefree when it came to schooling. I didn't let the fact that there was going to be a test or an exam. I didn't let it bother me. Projects, it just, it, it didn't really bother me at all. I just kind of, you know, whatever will be, will be. She was, she's wired differently, and she let those things bother her. She, she let tests. They were serious to her. She showed respect for them, and so having a project due, a paper due, an exam coming up, midterms, finals. Eh, it, you know, whatever for me, but for her, you know, that was, that was an issue of concern. As a result, she was a much, much better student than I was. I barely, barely passed. She did well. She excelled in school. I was nearly asked to leave school (laughs) because when you respect an exam, it causes you to prepare for it. When you don't show a whole lot of respect, eh, just whatever, it's very easy to find yourself not prepared, not ready. And when it comes time, you, you don't do well when, in the examination. But if you respect it, you've got a healthy fear for that examination then it causes you to prepare and you end up doing well. Well, this passage of scripture that we just read said that every one of us is going to come to a point in time where we will be examined before the Lord. Let me read it again. Verse 10. We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we have done in this earthly body. There there is a, a point in time where every single one of us will have to stand before Jesus Your name will be called and no one can go with you. Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your friends, your coworkers, you'll have to stand before him, just you and Jesus looking in his eyes and we'll be examined, have to give an account for how we spent our time, how we lived our life. And Paul is telling us here to have a healthy respect for that. He said in his own life, it caused him to prepare. Let me read the next verse again. Because we understand our fearful responsibility, It wasn't a joke to him. It was a reality. Man, someday I'm going to stand before Jesus. Jesus isn't just a name in a church song. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And someday you will stand before him. Everything will be laid bare and you will be examined. It was real to Paul. And he said, listen, because I, I, I get it. I understand it. It's a fearful responsibility. I have respect for the day. I know it's coming. I'm going to stand before him because as a result that we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard Man, we're not messing around. We're preparing. We're keeping ourselves on track. I don't have time to mess around. I don't have time to get off course. I don't have time to get involved in nonsense because I have an understanding. I'm going to stand before Jesus. It causes a healthy fear in me. Not a fear, I'm, I'm terrified of the Lord. I'm terrified of messing up. I'm terrified of letting anything come between me and Jesus. And it kept him on track. There's a point in time where you will stand before Jesus. And if you can develop a healthy fear, let that be a reality. Just like we started off talking about, Paul had an eternal perspective. And that's how he was able to say, listen, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith because I know there's a crown that I'm working towards. I know this life is temporary. It's passing away. It's foolishness to let my heart fall in love with something that's not going to last. When God is calling me to himself to set my affections on eternal things where I can enjoy an eternity with him instead of an eternity separated from him because I wanted to indulge in a few things that were so fleeting. If you and I can develop a healthy respect for the fact that we'll stand before the Lord, it'll help keep us steadfast. Keep us on track that you and I won't be part of the many whose love grows cold. That we started off with the intention, we, we've prayed that prayer, Jesus, I accept you as Lord and Savior. That won't just be something we did in the past, but somewhere along the lines, our, our life took a turn, and we, we grew colder and colder and colder. The fact that somebody's love can grow cold means that one time it wasn't cold. At one time it was hot. One time they were in love with Jesus. And one time they was, I'll never fall away. But something happened. In the course of days, and weeks, and years, and years, it just grew colder, and colder, and colder, and their heart got hard, and they didn't care anymore. That won't be me in Jesus' name. That won't be you in Jesus' name. We're not gonna let ourselves love this world, love the temporal things like demons, and cause us to desert serving the Lord. We're gonna put lust to death early on when it's easy to handle, when we see those things trying to sprout up in our lives, and they do. We're, we're gonna deal with them appropriately and not say whether they're cute and they're innocent at this point. We're gonna put them to death. We're gonna know there's coming a day. I'm living with eternity, my eyes on eternity. I'm gonna stand before Jesus, and I wanna be ready, a fearful understanding that causes us to work hard and stay focused and be the men of God and the women of God that we've been called to be. Amen? Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.